Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining me today. I just got off the Skype phone with Joseph Rouse to talk about his new book, Articulating the World, Conceptual Understanding and the Scientific Image. This came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2015. Now, this is a really exciting book for lots of reasons, um, but for me, one of the things that first drew me to it and one of the reasons I was so excited to share it with you on the channel is that it very deliberately, very effectively, and very clearly brings together really important literatures, problems, and concepts from the philosophy of science with really important literatures, problems, concepts, and conversations from science studies more broadly and science studies insofar as it encompasses social, cultural, practical, um, conceptual, um, and other kinds of studies of science and its practices and its worlds. So what you'll hear over the course of the conversation is an introduction to the way that the book forwards a very particular argument about naturalism, right? And about the, and you'll, and you'll hear us talking about that, about the problem and the stakes and the nature of debates about naturalism. And then an explication of how the consequences of the answer and engagement with that question really kind of speak to and open up the way we think about some basic fundamental issues and concepts for being a science studies scholar, but also for being a human being in the world. Um, And those include how we think about science as a practice or a set of practices. They include how we understand scientific practice and really human practice as part of the construction of a niche and how we might integrate understandings of um, kind of ecological, biological niches and niche construction into the way we understand how and why scientific practices are an important part of and importantly help create our being in the world as uh, knowing beings, but also as beings in general. So there are really important stakes here for some uh, important conversations in science studies, and you'll hear us talk about them um, in the interview to come. But there are also important stakes that you'll hear us talk about at the end of the interview much more broadly for what uh, Joe refers to as our uh, natural history, the ongoing natural history of our species and how we understand our space in the world right now, our responsibility for helping to create that world and our responsibility for helping to figure out what happens next in the future. So I hope you enjoy. Um, I definitely did. It was really a pleasure to talk with Joe about this book. It was a super pleasure and very, very inspiring to read it. And I am as ever very grateful to you for being here and listening. So thanks for your support and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Joseph Rouse about his new book, Articulating the World. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Joe, and thanks so much both for writing a book that's so exciting, I think, for such a broad range of readers in science studies and for making time to talk with me about it today. Welcome to the channel. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. Of course. So let's start at the beginning with how you came to the field. What brought you to the philosophy of science as, a, as an academic field and as a field that you're working on? Well, I came into philosophy as a refugee from science. Having having gotten interested in philosophy, which I took as a distribution requirement, went on to graduate school, really having disconnected from my prior background in the sciences, and then rediscovered it when I saw connections between developments in continental philosophy, which I was training in, and developments in the philosophy of science in the 60s and 70s with Tom Kuhn and Paul Feyerup and so forth. So that really brought me into philosophy of science and into the connections between uh, philosophy of science 
and philosophy of language and mind in both the analytic and continental traditions. So the book that we're talking about today um, is subtitled Conceptual Understanding and the Scientific Image. And we're going to talk um, quite a bit in the uh, conversation to come about the ways that it's going to be engaging, um, pressing us to think about, and really uh, advocating and giving us tools to think through ideas of naturalism, ideas of scientific practice, and the ways that we can think about scientific practices, scientific discourses as part of a social biological world, and as informed by notions that include uh, the notion of an ecological niche, among many others. So there's a lot of really exciting things going on in the book that we are going to explore. How did you come to this particular project, and what... Um, at what point did you conceptualize this as a book-length project and a book-length object? Well, I've been working on thinking about the sciences as practices and what that means both for how we understand the sciences and scientific understanding and how it bears on our broader conceptions of mind and language, really for my entire career. This is the fourth book. And what really brought this particular book into its current form, and the recognition that I had a book project here, was uh, is my growing interest in recent developments in evolutionary biology, which I saw as giving us a much richer connection between the kinds of work that I'm interested in in science studies and alternative conceptions of language and mind. And and of scientific knowledge and philosophy. So let's start at the beginning. Let's get right into the book and kind of explore our way um, around by diving in. In the words of the book, and this is um, uh, from the very beginning of the book, the most pressing challenge for naturalism today is to show how to account for our own capacities of scientific understanding as a natural phenomenon that can be understood scientifically. So for listeners who might not be um, steeped in the literature discourses on naturalism, let's start by talking about why this is such a pressing challenge. Why is it a pressing challenge, and why is it so important to attend to this problem right now and to do this? Well, there are two things I think that come together here. On the one hand, the sense that our self-understanding ought to be broadly secularist and natural uh, in some sense. That is, that we shouldn't be trying to, to invoke supernatural, transcendent, uh, ahistorical conceptions of ourselves seems, to, I think, to make sense to many people within a broadly secular modern culture. At the same time, especially people in science studies, have been well aware of the limits of efforts to provide a more traditional naturalist conception of ourselves that has been reductionist to either to physics or to neo-Darwinist biology or to some other or seemingly inadequately narrow conception of ourselves. And so part of the impetus for this is to understand how it is that we can vindicate the sense of ourselves as natural beings, organisms in a natural world, and still account for the, on the one hand, rich social and cultural practices and the conceptual norms that govern our thinking and, and uh, conceptual articulation. The sense that naturalism seems both obviously right in the broad sense and hard to make intelligible in its details is really the governing intuition of the book. And what I'm trying to do is to show how we can actually vindicate a, a naturalistic conception that actually also gives us some richer insights into, on the one hand, sciences, and on the other hand, our own capacities and predicaments. That's right. Um, so the, the book, I mean, specifically in the words of the book, just to kind of uh, emphasize what you're just saying, it shows that meeting this pressing challenge, right, the challenge that we've just talked about 
requires changing how we account for two things. On the one hand, how to, in the words of the book, situate our conceptual capacities within a scientific understanding of the world, and this is very much in line with what you've just said, and at the same time, accounting for what a scientific conception of the world amounts to. And there are two parts of the book that are going to do um, these two kinds of accounting or help us through these two kinds of accounting. Part one of the book, and now I'm just going to take a few minutes just to lay out the structure and then we can dive in. Part one reconsiders, again in the words of the book, how to think philosophically and scientifically about conceptual understanding. This part of the book is going to emphasize what you call the normativity of discursive practice within an evolving developmental niche. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. And understands language and scientific practices to be examples of the evolutionary process of niche construction. Okay, again, we're going to get there in a moment. After we do that, essentially situating conceptual understanding within a scientific conception of nature, part two is then going to explain what it is to have a scientific conception of nature in terms of the account of conceptual understanding that the first part of the book just laid out for us. So this is how these two parts um, articulate together and fit together. Okay, since it's um, been coming up repeatedly, let's get to niches. Now, organisms are closely coupled with their environments. This is a very, very important insight that the beginning of the book is reminding us or telling us if we're not already um, deeply uh, enmeshed in that way of thinking about um, organisms and environments. Now, this is going to be a guiding principle of what happens in the rest of the book, so let's get there. For listeners who may not be familiar with niche construction theory, for you, what are the most important and salient aspects, broadly speaking, of niche construction theory for us to understand in order to understand how you're going to go and use these to inform the project of the book. Well, it's important to remember that the dominant understanding of evolutionary biology for the last 50 or 60 years has really drawn a sharp divide between organisms and environments. That is, it's the external environment that's supposed to provide selection pressures to which organisms adapt. Now, what misconstruction theory and related to it conceptions of phenotypic plasticity in biology do is to show that the environment to which organisms are adapted is it's, are, are themselves very much shaped by and in some ways selected by the organisms themselves. So, so that instead of seeing the environment as a kind of physical given determinant of what we're like, because we have to adapt to this external surrounding, the construction theory recognizes that uh, organisms constantly shape their environment. To some extent, they choose their environment and by migration, by living in in some aspects of the surrounding world. So the environment itself is only specified by the way of life of the organism, which of course in turn is only, it only develops in relation to the environment. So it becomes a very complex feedback process. As, and that's, I think, the most important contribution of these construction theories to recognize the complexity and interrelated character of organism-environment relations. Now, the other thing that the book does, with a number of people have started working on Derek Bickerton and the linguist is a good example, uh, is to understand language and, and social practices as themselves forms of niche construction. That is, it's, a, it's an obvious fact once you think about it, that human beings only norm, normally develop in a richly discursive environment, language is surrounds us from infancy, and much of our early lives are an adaptation to that linguistic and otherwise symbolic environment, which is itself, of course, only the outcome of many, many thousands of generations of what I call behavioral niche construction. That is, is 
called Islands of Park, which which provide an environment with which the next generation adapts in a way that reproduces that pattern. So you're seeing the organism-environment relation as mutually interactive and mutually determinative, and seeing language as a public uh, biological phenomenon that is part of our developmental environment. I think are the two key points for this construction theory in the book. Great. And really part one of the book and many of the chapters in part one of the book are going to take on and unfold and deal with and explain precisely the phenomenon that you just described. Now, one of the things that's happening in part one of the book around um, this kind of work is you are giving us the tools to not just um, understand language and other symbolically significant, as you call them, expressive capacities as forms of human niche construction, you're also relating what's happening there with language to something that the book calls conceptual understanding. Now, rather than take for granted that listeners are going to understand what the book means by conceptual understanding, in order to bring this into our conversation, can you talk a little bit about, for you, and, and you know, in, in the context of the book, especially um, the second and third um, chapters, what do we need to understand about um, how you're asking us to understand conceptual understanding to know how that is going to articulate with this picture of language and other um, expressive capacities as um, parts of niche construction? Well, here it helps to back up a little bit because the book is written against the background of a dominant and philosophical and broadly cultural conception of our conceptual capacities as embedded in mental representations. The notion that we have, in some sense, mental states that have a representational content about something is the standard sort of conception of, of what it is to understand things discursively, to be able to talk about them, to relate to things with a meaning. And part of what the book is doing is challenging that broad conception. And the book is arguing that language is not something that we have in the head, but it's something we, that's out in the world, that we adapt to, learn to pick up on, and learn to engage with perceptually, that is, we learn how to hear it and hear the relative distinctions, and to produce those linguistic expressions that are all intelligible to others as part of uh, a larger practice. So it, it's seeing our mindedness in the life, our very capacity to think thoughts, to engage in actions with a definite content, and, uh, and so forth, as parts of our engagement with the material and social world, rather than uh, and as an internal mental so depiction of an external world. Now, there are lots of developments in philosophy and, and social theory that are consonant with that, but seeing that as part of our biology and seeing mindedness and conceptual capacities as embedded in material social practices rather than in mental representations is really the key point of talking about conceptual understanding. Great. And this is a really exciting place, and this is one of many exciting places, where I really think the work that the book does is um, meeting and speaking to and, and articulating with some really important directions that science studies as a field has gone in general, right, in the past um, some odd years. I mean, there's really been, more generally speaking, a turn amongst um, science studies scholars who don't necessarily self-identify as philosophers or self-identify as people who are contributing actively to or speaking actively from a position within the philosophy field a turn toward practice, a turn toward taking very seriously and playfully the embodied 
contextualized, practice-oriented, um, and sort of a practical craft aspects of what science is as a practice. And so in many ways, I think this study is really converging on some really, really important work and some really important themes that are animating um, a lot of science studies right now in really exciting ways. And this is a, a really fresh take on that that also incorporates evolutionary biological theory in, I, I think, a really fresh way and a really interesting way that we don't often see in these um, arguments about the importance of practice and the turn to practice in science studies. So not only, and so this is something, a kind of work that, as I mentioned before, the first part of the book and the first chapters of the book really do quite beautifully and quite carefully um, and very kind of slowly and in great detail. So we're not going to be able to um, talk in detail about all of the ways that the first part of the book opens up and explores um, the significance of what you've just said. But I just want to mark for listeners um, that there is a lot of material here that does exactly that. Chapters three and four, um, in particular, are devoted to helping us understand some of what you've talked about, language, thought, um, conceptual understanding, and other what you call conceptually articulated performances as forms of behavioral niche construction that have co-evolved with human ways of life. And we've talked a little bit about that. Now, another important part of the work that the book is doing, and we're going to get um, in more detail to some of this, is to not just explain conceptual understanding and language and other kinds of performance as part of our behavioral niche construction, but also helping us understand the sciences themselves as part of our ongoing niche construction, right? Can you kind of begin to talk um, a little bit about that? For you, what are some of the most important ways um, that the sciences themselves are part of our ongoing niche construction? And I know this is a much larger conversation, so um, let's just kind of get it started now and we'll see where it goes. Well, I would start actually by emphasizing the theme, which is continuous with a lot of work in science studies, that is namely that the sciences' conceptual and theoretical development are very closely tied to experimental practice. The building of experimental systems and uh, imperial practices that change the world and allow things to show up in new ways are actually integral to our possible possibility of understanding them and articulating those aspects of the world discursively. So that's one part of the conception of scientific practice as niche construction. It's by building experimental systems, getting things in the world to do new things that allows us to articulate new possibilities conceptually. So that's one part of it. Maybe let's actually slow down and, and, and take on that part of it um, before moving on to other parts, because this actually really nicely brings us into the second part of the book. So for listeners um, who are kind of following along um, and, and understanding this as part of the structure of the book, where we are right now is kind of diving into part two, and chapter six in particular really introduces this idea of not just experiment, but experimental systems um, as kind of forms of world-making and specifically as micro-worlds. Chapter 6 argues that the sciences continually change, in the words of the book, how aspects of the world are intelligible to us and which aspects stand out as scientifically and culturally significant. This is a really, really important point. So let's talk about this um, and, and get into what you just said and kind of pull it apart a little bit. Experimental systems. What's important about the fact that you're talking about experimental systems here and not just experiments? No, it's the fact that, and this really takes us into a later chapter in the book, uh, that the system provides a whole set of internal relationships with respect to which we can uh, open up an entire conceptual domain. Now, here's an example that I draw on extensively later in the book, and many of listeners may be familiar with this from work on the one hand by Rob Kohler, and on the other hand by Hansrup Weinberg, that uh, genetics as a field 
only gets opened up by the development of, of whole new experimental systems. The, the classical Drosophila system allowed one to separate genetic relationships from their developmental realization in an organism by building the, basically an artificial organism, the feeding stocks of fruit flies that the Morgan Laboratory put together. They're, and systematically connecting various mutations to one another and to locations on the chromosome that could be being also identified microscopically. And it's those systematic relationships which allows for a whole conceptual domain to be developed. Uh, the point I'm making in, in Chapter 6 is that whereas we often think about sciences as having given us new, new, new truths, there's a more fundamental achievement, which I think also changes the way we think about uh, the truths that have been un uncovered, and that is that it enables us to talk about whole aspects of the world at all. It's only by being able to make certain kinds of patterns visible or detectable and connected to other things in a systematic way in an experimental practice that we can begin to talk about new aspects of the world with any, with any content of thought. It's the ability to go back and forth between systematic relations between our, our conceptual elements and our, the material practices in which, the, in which those can be attached to aspects of the world that brings whole domains of, of, of whole aspects of the world, as I put it, into the space of reason, into the things we can talk about, reason about, act toward, and so forth. And this really interestingly plays out. Um, I don't think that the book explicitly uses this term, um, but it plays out, um, especially in Chapter 9, in terms of the way it's helping us, or at least helping me as a reader, I can just speak for myself, think about experimental systems making available resources for storytelling. I don't think you use the word storytelling, but you do talk about the importance of experimental systems as fictional constructions, right? Giving us fictional um, resources. And in fictional, you make very clear you don't just mean stories about stuff that's not true, right? I mean, this is a very particular way of thinking about fiction as a form of crafting, as a form of making. Um, would you speak to that a little bit? And here we're jumping into chapter nine for listeners who are kind of following along. Um, just this aspect of, and, and the importance for you of integrating a notion of fictional construction into the way that you are um, integrating uh, experimental systems and world-making practices. You know, part of my reason for talking those terms are provocative because I think that we have thought in, certainly in much of philosophy science, but I think in other parts of the culture as well, we have misunderstood the kind of conceptual work that fictions do. Right? Fictions are not just as representations of things that aren't so. Among other things, we have lots of literary practices in which we have, say, novels about things that actually happen. And so it's not about misrepresentation or representation of something non-existent. What makes fiction interesting is that it, in, in a fiction, you articulate a, a space or a world in which the internal relations within that world allow you to depict things or articulate things more clearly than you can and, and in a more complex setting. And so it's this world-making character of fictions that I'm interested in. And the way I really bring this out, I hope provocatively, is by talking about experimental systems as fictions. That they're clearly not representations of things that don't exist. Rather, they are constructions, things we make, that open a space or a world in 
in which we can talk about relations within that space, and then we can connect the concepts that can be characterized and developed within the, the, the fictional world to two situations outside of that. And so here, you might think of uh, something like Dickens's London as a fictional construction, which nevertheless gives us very rich conceptual insights into what was happening in 19th century England and in ways that allowed certain kinds of patterns and relationships to stand out. And that's what I'm arguing that experimental systems do. They create a structure that's much more regulated, somewhat simplified, but which enables certain conceptual patterns to be become salient and to be for the norms for the appropriate application of those concepts to be worked out in that context. And that's one of the important forms of scientific niche construction. Right. Building these new, more localized micro worlds of, in which conceptual patterns can be worked out in ways is that have a clear application and that we can then extend uh, to other settings. This is a theme in science studies that goes back a long way. Think of Bruno Latour's early paper, Gifty Laboratory, and I'll Raise the World. So this is extending those kinds of connections and that have been explored in much of the science studies literature for a long time, but seeing it as integral to the very possibility of talking about, reasoning about, and acting towards novel aspects of the world. That's right. And one of, for me, the most striking things about this and about what you've just mentioned is that the book is not, um, your book is not suggesting that there is a static world, right? You're talking about worlds. I mean, very explicitly, you were talking in the plural, right? That experimental systems create worlds for us. And importantly, those fictional worlds, at least now, I'm speaking just from my perspective as a reader and the way that this inspired um, my thinking of, along these lines. And so let me know if I'm completely um, uh, going orthogonal to what you intended to the point that I missed understanding, okay? What I understood you to be saying in part here as well is that these fictional worlds, in, insofar as they are giving us resources and patterns to remake the world more generally, they're helping us continually transform our world and worlds, and it's precisely those worlds that we are co-making that, I mean, this speaks directly to the insight that thus scientific practices give us resources for our world's construction, which is very much part of this niche construction idea that you're talking about, and thus this makes the practices of the sciences intimately part of who we are as uh, organism, as organismal beings, and part of what we're doing as we are help constructing our world as a kind of niche. I mean, is that roughly something like yes, how they're connected here? Remember that this is a book that's developing and defending a naturalistic conception of ourselves. That is, we are material beings, organisms that are part of the material world, uh, and one of the central themes of the book is that our capacities to articulate and understand the world have to be understood as themselves part of the world. Precisely. There is no standpoint from outside in which we can look at the world and our relation to it from sideways on, as in John McDowell's phrase, or in a God's eye view, as sometimes described, what Donna Haraway calls the God trick. Our conceptualization is itself part of the world. Now, part of what I'm then interested in is how we can open up a space within which some aspects of the world are about some other aspects of the world in ways that have content and that can be answerable for their correctness and incorrectness such that they can meaningfully say something about the world. In a sense, that's what the whole book is about and the way the sciences are involved. But uh, the second sense of world, the sense in which I talk about micro-worlds or fictional worlds, is within you know, part of the material world we live in. That is, we make things. 
systems, and we engage in social practices which have uh, interrelated forms of equipment. All of these are conceptually articulated practices which allow us to differentiate what it's appropriate to say from whether it's true, what it's appropriate to do with the tool from whether it works, and other forms of what I call two-dimensional normativity as the characteristic form of the conceptual. Mm -hmm. So why, getting back to, and sort of picking up on something that you've just said, this idea of two-dimensional normativity, okay? One of the places where this um, kind of comes up, at least for me, in this idea of normativity, in the first part of the book especially, is in a chapter that we haven't talked about yet. Okay, so we're um, here. Let's pull back a little bit because, in a way, a conversation about normativity or understanding the work that normativity is doing for you allows us to get to the work that that is doing to speak to objectivity in Chapter 5 of the book. And objectivity is one of these notions that, for science studies, is a super hot topic. Right there, There's a lot of really exciting work coming out of um, the histories of and with objectivity, and you engage quite a bit of that in this part of the book and in this chapter. So to get to objectivity, for listeners who may not be familiar with the idea of normativity as you're using it here, can you introduce for us the importance of this notion of normativity, okay, and conceptual normativity specifically, as it's animating what you're doing here, and then move to how does this help us speak to questions of objectivity in the book? Well, normativity is a term of art in the book to, to emphasize that the, the entire account in the book is showing how we can and all. Oh, distinguish between things that are correct and incorrect, meaningful or meaningless, appropriate or inappropriate, just or unjust, any kind of normative assessment without uh, having some kind of special entity, a norm, which, which, which provides a standard for that. So it, in a sense, the book is developing an account of, of normativity without determinative norms. Now, the way you get that is by seeing our ability to speak to one another, to assess various uh, claims as a temporal phenomenon. That is, as one in which we are trying to coordinate our practices towards some common end, but where the end is not something already determined but is itself something we're all trying to work toward in often conflicting ways. Is, now, how does this connect to objectivity? Well, objectivity is a particular account of the normativity of our epistemic practices. And one of the things I'm trying to emphasize in the book is that there are really two fundamentally different ways in which the concept of objectivity is going to apply. It's most familiar as an epistemic concept. The idea is that if our inquiry are in some way objective, then that's going to be either the determinant or the best uh, basis we can have for determining that, the, that those inquiries are correct or ought to be accepted. Now, I think that is very problematic. I don't think there is any such notion of objectivity that can do that kind of work. Uh, the second conception, which I think has actually been important in, in a fair amount of recent work in science studies, but it's also been important in, in work uh, from Wilbert Zeller and Donald Davidson and others in philosophy, is that objectivity is about what it is for an utterance, a thought, an action, to be about something at all, and how and what it is for it to be about it in a particular way, such that it takes the object as an object of a certain kind or as something to be approached in a certain way. And so it's that, and once you have that second notion, which is, I think, the notion of conceptual objectivity of kinds of, of our performances as conceptually about an object, mm -hmm. uh, then you 
with you. You move from final determinations of what is correct or incorrect to the ways in which we relate to one another are in trying to settle what is correct or incorrect. Uh, the way this plays out in science studies is that, and this now makes the transition from chapter five at the end of part one to chapter six in the beginning of part two, is that we've often thought of scientific understanding in terms of a body of knowledge. I think that's wrong. The sciences are, are always moving beyond current understanding. Scientific practice is research-oriented. It's directed beyond current understanding. And so we need to think about scientific understanding as directed ahead of itself towards the revising and refining and transmitting of even further articulation of the understanding we already have. And this, you know, this is another part of the way in which the book is so trying to situate our understanding in the midst of the world rather than from an ad imagined standpoint at which knowledge has been somehow completed or in which we can stand outside the world and look at our understanding of it in relation to the world from sideways on. Moral of the book is you can't do that. That's right. And this is where we come as we're kind of working through these ideas in the book to the importance of some of the points that have come up that we can just highlight here as being kind of an importantly derivative from what you just said, right? You're understanding the sciences importantly here as social and material practices. And in this way, the work that the book is doing is very carefully and closely aligned with the kinds of sensibilities that I think um, listeners from the science studies are going to relate to, right, and are going to recognize in some of the most important work coming out of science studies right now. This also gets us to kind of naturally this idea of scientific understanding and other kinds of conceptual transformations as, as you put it here, world transforming. And we've talked a little bit already about how that works um, and why that's so important for reconceptualizing what we're doing here. Now, we've talked about some key terms, um, if we can call them that, that are going to immediately translate into um, really active discourses that are being created um, in the field of science studies more broadly, right? You, we've talked about the importance of systems. Um, we've just talked about, you know, the importance of practice. We've talked about the importance of worlds. Um, another really key term, um, if we can talk in, in those terms here, that the book is going to open up for us is another very important notion more broadly in science studies, and this is the notion of a law or laws. And as we move from these chapters that do this work to establish the world transforming nature of scientific practice in part two, we move to chapter eight, which really takes on um, and explores the significance of these ideas for how we understand and how we might reconceptualize the notion of a law. Chapter eight does this by focusing on what you call the modal character of scientific understanding. Again, to kind of translate this for an audience that might not naturally hear the word modal and understand immediately what that means, can you talk for us about um, how, how you'd like us to understand what the modal character of scientific understanding is so that we can move from there to understand how this is going to importantly inform a notion of law? So this is, as you probably recognize, uh, is the longest and I think the most difficult chapter in the book. The, the modality in the, in the philosophical sense, as, or at least the modality, which is what I'm talking about here, concerns, concerns considerations of necessity, possibility, impossibility, and so forth. And often, you know, traditional notions of law suggest that all that laws are not just true about the world, but in some sense necessarily true. And there's been a lot of literature that has, for example, argued that if there may be laws in physics or chemistry, but no laws in biology. And part of what I'm doing is to argue that we need a different conception of law in order to uh, understand the role that laws play in scientific practice. Uh, and so, uh, and this is connected 
to the systematicity of, of concepts. The argument in the book is that we can only apply concepts and have them and extend to new cases if they have a certain kind of invariance, or as philosophers would say, modal structure. And so the thesis of chapter 8, drawing on work by John Copeland and Mark Lang, is that we need a revised conception of laws or lawfulness is, that will allow us to understand how it is that concepts get extended and applied. Now, one of the results of this is that there are different uh, there are kinds of laws with different scope, different degree of precision and accuracy across all the sciences, even in the humanities. In order, for example, for, uh, for a book in science studies like Andy Pickering's Constructing Course to not just be about uh, high energy physics, but to tell us something about the sciences more generally is implicitly to say that there's a modal structure to science studies. <laughs> Concepts that extend and have a kind of invariance that allow us to take other instances as confirming or disconfirming what uh, Pickering argued in the book. <laughs> now, what I'm doing in this chapter is, first of all, trying to develop this notion of laws and the kind of conceptual invariance of laws in and across the various sciences, the, the different kinds of laws you have that make certain kinds of phenomena biologically necessary or geologically necessary as well as physically necessary. And then second, to get that connected to the ways in which scientific practice is normative, how it is that the skills and disclosures involved, say, in experimental science, connect to concepts that can be applied to entities in a more general way. And third, to see that entire process not as a kind of mental or linguistic representation, but as itself a larger pattern, material pattern that includes both discursive practice in the world and material transformations, for example, experimental systems. And so it's a very long and complex argument. The idea is consonant with the themes in the book of seeing I mean, how the sciences open up conceptual spaces. They do that by materially changing both the world and the ways we talk about it and seeing that entire practice as a form of niche construction changes the world we live in to enable it to be conceptually a meaningful goal as part of human lives. That's a long and complex expression, but it's a long and complicated chapter. I thought that was totally clear, actually, and I think it really beautifully shows how um, and the chapter does this very beautifully, I think, as well. And and I think all of the chapters honestly do this. I mean, the, one of the things that I really appreciate the book is a kind of oral footnote here is how clear it is. And it's very clear that you um, seemingly worked very hard to make sure that this book was readable and clear to a number of different kinds of readers who were coming at this from very different spaces within science studies, including spaces that may not be familiar with reading a philosophy of science book. And so it's so thank you for that, for making it so clear, um, because because it's so clear, um, even as it is offering a very complex and very carefully wrought argument, it's more... And I'm, I don't want to say easy to see, but it's very clear to see the ways in which this story is going to potentially inform not just how we understand um, scientific practices, niche construction, not just how we understand concerns about naturalism, and we'll get back to that in a moment, but also how we might inform some of these basic concepts that a lot of us are trying to trouble and are, are worrying about, are working on, like law, right? Like worlds and worlding, like... Um, experimentation and its articulation of um, patterns and ways of knowing and, and scientific, scientific experimentation and practice as a practice and as a practice that is social and biological and embodied. And so in all of these ways, it's telling a story that's very broadly resonant with a number of very active um, conversations that are happening right now. Now, one of the things that you bring up as we kind of move 
toward um, the conclusion of our conversation and sort of toward the conclusion of the book with absolutely no um, claim that we've at all exhausted the, the possibility of talking in much more depth and probably for another few hours about what's going on, you know, in the chapters that we've already very lightly traveled through. One of the things that comes up um, right at the beginning of the book um, is uh, the beginning of a conversation about what the implications, what the stakes, kind of what the potential outcomes are for understanding scientific practice as a form of niche construction um, and, and all its related um, you know, concepts that go with that in this way. Now, one of the things that you suggest early on, or the book says explicitly, is that these forms of intelligibility, right, that are produced and changed by scientific conceptual understanding are integral to the ongoing natural history of our species, right? Again, the forms of intelligibility are integral to the ongoing natural history of our species. That's a very strong claim, and it's, it makes a claim um, for a, a quite a dramatic importance of understanding scientific um, uh, practice in this way. Um, so can you speak to that for you? What is so important and integral to the ongoing natural history of our species in understanding forms of intelligibility and scientific practice in this way? Well, I'll start actually a little bit earlier, reminding you that, that part of what I'm doing is taking language and other conceptual practices as part of our biological history and seeing, seeing that as both transforming us and transforming the world. Now, in the case of sciences, what is one of the phenomena that we're all familiar with are the, the ways in which the sciences have materially transformed the world. Think about the electrical grid or the ways in which uh, the agricultural monocropping have literally transformed the, uh, the face of the planet. We're all, of course, now increasingly aware of issues of climate change and the, the kinds of understanding and the kinds of capacities that have been developed in and through the sciences have materially changed the circumstances in which we live in quite dramatic ways. In doing that, of course, they have simultaneously changed what we can think, say, and do. And that, that connection is part of what I've been trying to emphasize all the way through the book. Uh, but it has one final point when this really comes out in the epilogue of the book, and that is that, that even naturalists who have tended to be suspicious of any kind of transcendent notion of, ra of rationality or reason and, or any effort for, you know, to understand transcendental conditions for meaning or understanding have still thought about language, conceptuality, intelligibility as a kind of universal phenomenon. Could be instantiated on other planets or in other ecosystems by different, different kinds of organisms or machines. And one of the things this book is doing is seeing conceptual capacities as, as historically arising within a particular biological lineage and more closely connected to our specific biology than most people have tended to think. And that does put our all our own natural history, include our, including our own uncertain possibilities, in a new life. And, and that's really where the book concludes, is by reminding us that uh, all, uh, once you understand conceptual normativity, rationality, and intelligibility, if you like, as biological features of a particular lineage rather than universal traits that happen to be instantiated in a particular lineage, it changes very dramatically how we think about ourselves and our prospects. So for you, how does it change how we think about our prospects? Well, it raises the stakes. It's the sense in which the very possibilities and ways of understanding and meaning and living a, a, a life that is intelligible and rational, that that is itself a biological phenomenon that is vulnerable and at risk, is 
has to be something that we think about. Uh, it's not just these particular organisms whose lives and possibilities are at stake in how we confront, with, for example, issues of climate change or possible uh, nuclear proliferation and warfare. It's the very possibility of understanding and conceptualizing the world. So when that goes, when that is gone, it will not be there again. So at the end of the day, perhaps one of the take-home implications of understanding um, science, scientific uh, conceptualization, understanding ourselves in this way, one of the stakes is that it really leads us to an ethics of responsibility. Um, whether or not you are the kind of person who is fundamentally concerned with that outside you, understanding that that which is that which you have thought to be outside you is actually intimately part of you and part of your lineage kind of changes where that responsibility lies for you. Um, and I, I think it's, it's a really important uh, implication. And I think it's really, really fascinating that the book does ask us to think about the stakes in this way. And then that's um, very clearly done in the epilogue. So, Joe, we are at now the end um, of our hour. There are a billion, million things that we haven't talked about. There's so much in this book. It is such a rich study, and we've really only scratched the surface. But given that, is there anything in particular that hasn't come up, um, anything that we haven't had a chance to talk about that you'd like to raise or mention for listeners? I guess the one thing I would emphasize is that, and this really comes out of chapter 10, but it reflects a broader point made about the locus of all of my work. Uh, oh, my work was, although came out of a particular tradition and philosophy that combined both the continental and analytic traditions, I was very fortunate to, very early in my career, in the late 70s and early 80s, to meet and engage with Feminist Science Study Scholar by Ellen Keller and Donna Haraway, the emergence of the early sociology and knowledge tradition, people like Renata Latour, Steve Wolgar, uh, Michael Lynch, and, and Harry Collins, and so forth. And the engagement with science studies has been really central to everything I've done in Boston. Now, where this most clearly comes out in the book, in one sense, it's all the way through, Part two, but but part of it is recognizing that uh, scientific understanding is always partial and selective. It's about which aspects of the world matter to us, and how and, and how the further development of those concepts and ideas make a difference to how we think about ourselves, how we live, and hence that the meaning and significance of scientific work is centrally developed not only in the technical and detailed work with experimental systems and theoretical models that philosophers talk about, but in the broader patterns of cultural interpretation, political appropriation, material transformation of the world that have been centrally of interest throughout the science studies tradition. And one of the things I wanted to do in this book, as really in all of my work back to my first book, Knowledge of Power, has been to show how philosophical work on the detailed development of scientific understanding and the cultural and political work that has been central to feminist and anthropological and sociological and cultural historical science studies really are mutually informative and really belong together in, in a single articulated conception of the world. Great. Thank you so much, um, and thank you for that. So now that the book is out, and congratulations on what um, I, I hope is obvious to listeners, I find to be a really important and really exciting book, what's next for you? What are you currently thinking about, and, and what's occupying you and inspiring you now? Well, not surprisingly, the, there are many themes in the book that I've been developing further. I've been doing some papers on uh, you know, connecting the arguments in the book to other work in science studies and philosophy of science. 
I'm doing some uh, some work uh, that connects uh, the kind of project and book to to other work in continental and analytic philosophy. I think in the end, what I'm most likely to uh, to work on, and this is really in a in a project drawing, bringing together on the one hand a kind of tradition from uh, from Sellers and Davidson and others in the in philosophy of language and mind, and uh, work in, in the continental tradition, especially Heidegger's being in time and and, and uh, related kind of work that give us a deeper philosophical conception of what it is to speak, to think, to understand, and to be to live a life that is is meaningful and open to possibilities. So thinking about what is said and what is not said that we work toward in those in those different philosophical traditions and find it push that a little bit deeper is where I'm going next. But of course, I'm given where my interests are, that's always going to come back to thinking about sciences and their place in the world that we inhabit. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of that to talk with me today and to share this with us. It's really been a pleasure, and congratulations again on the book. Thank you for, you know, you clearly given the book a very careful and thoughtful and well-informed reading, and it's been a delight to have a conversation. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.